Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwash with me, Jaspreet, and Jill Booth is back in the house. And today, Jill and I are moving on to SDG 11, which states, make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. That's all my trigger words right there, Jill, in one single sentence. Yeah, and um, what what actually is a human settlement? Because I always grew up in towns, villages, and cities. So now we're suddenly into human settlements and human settlement zones. Sounds slightly ominous, really. It used to be, you know, animal corridors, and now it's human corridors and human settlements. And uh, safe, how much have we heard about safety in the last three years with the COVID nonsense? Resilient communities, sustainable. Gosh, I, I need to move on from that headline because otherwise, yeah, I'm just getting triggered and triggered. But let's see, what targets do they have under those? Well, hang on. Mm -hmm. We'll do our translation for goal 11, which is make cities and human settlements safe and resilient and sustainable. And the translation for that one is create protracted rural spaces, forcing people into cities, mega cities, with 24-7 surveillance in all public spaces and ban single-family homes with garages. So, you know, there's a lot more behind this than than what's been um, let on. So, yeah, go for it, Jasper. Rock into it. <laughs> Okie doke. And haven't we seen that now that you have put, put the translation there? I'm going to change my course where I was going to take this. So we've had high-density housing now being pretty much par for the course across the country. Builders no longer need to provide either a parking space or a garage. I drive to Queenstown maybe once a quarter for some event or the other or sometimes just a day out with the kids. And the sort of pocket handkerchief lots that are mushrooming around the airport and the shopping center there, I look at them and I think, what a blight you are on this beautiful landscape. Do you feel the same? Absolutely. You know, again, I've been down in this region now for 40 years, so I've seen Queenstown um, just grow and mushroom and then that huge development at, at Lake Hayes. And you can see that how that all works with the urban planning that they're doing for these smart cities so that all the, and for want of a better word, all the plebs or the working class people are on the outside. So they will do their shopping at the five mile with the big box stores. And then the inside of Queenstown, you will eventually have to pay to get into it, which they're already talking about in other cities in New Zealand now. And it's reserved more for the wealthy and the people that can afford to go there. So you can see with Queenstown's a great example, actually, because it is so compact. Um, but the development going on on the other side of Queenstown is is huge as well. Um, and you'd see it coming in from your end, Jasper, around Jack's Point and, yep. you know, yep. around this, yeah, it's, it's massive. So um, And can <clears> we take a moment at this point, and I know we've, this is probably not what we were thinking we'd head into, but can we take a moment here to appreciate the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations that have been so active in this sector? And I often think democracy is being outsourced. One consultant, one NGO, one unelected and unaccountable consultant and NGO at a time. It comes down from the United Nations and who picks up these dictates? Now, if I speak about 
say, just since you just mentioned Queenstown, look at Queenstown. In this area, there's this NGO called Shaping Our Future. Their website, listeners, is shapingourfuture.org.nz. And this NGO states that its job, its mission is to have long-term visions produced by the community, for the community, and owned by the community. I went to a few of their workshops around this area when they came. Most of the people there in those meetings, and number one, there'd be less than a dozen in every single meeting. And number two, I knew 99% of the people who were going along to these meetings because the vast people have no idea what's going on. So this one particular NGO on their website, shapingourfuture.org.nz, they have produced a Queenstown Transport Task Force report. Now, number one, who gave them this authority? And number two, who have they consulted while doing this? And when I say that they are making plans, their plans are very, very comprehensive. They are, I'm talking of you know plans which are 20, 30, 40 pages long. And they have split the whole district into separate areas. And there is a Frankton plan. There is, which other suburbs are there, uh, Jill? Lake Hayes transport plan <coughs> and all of those. Burn Hill, they'll be yeah. doing okay further out. Yeah. And they've been active in this space, looking at some of the paperwork on their website. They've been active in this space since 2017. Yes. So when you, I had a look at going through, and there's a, I'm sitting looking at a, a lovely picture of Helen Clark. Um, so this is from the 27th of March, and you know, 2007. So Commonwealth Local Government meeting with a plea for the urban poor. Um, so that was 2007. We're now in 2023, coming into 24, and nothing, nothing has changed. So this little article or this article just, you know, to take from it is that local government conferences, so this is New Zealand, local government conference is a key partner of UN Habitat. So has your council ever informed you that we're a key partner of UN Habitat? And that's what our local government, um, like LGNZ, that's what they're working towards, are all these so, so this has been in the making for a long time. I can't remember going to a community visioning meeting um, that ever mentioned UN Habitat. No, no. Yeah. And this this NGO states that while developing this Queenstown Task Force uh, report, we had access to a range of information provided by NZTA, QLDC, and interested parties. <laughs> and they're visioning. So if you want to talk 15-minute cities, I'll just reel off the names of the community reports they've produced. There's the Arrowtown Community Visioning, Frankton Community Visioning, Glenorchy Community Visioning, Lake Javier Community Visioning, Kingston Community Visioning, Lake Dunstan Community Visioning, Lake Hayes Community Visioning, Shotover Country Visioning, Southland Community Visioning, Upper Clutha, Upper Clutha Conservation. Just look at how these communities, small community of even Queenstown is not a big city. It's a small place, very, very compact. How many silos we split these into and how many individual visioning plans there are? Why do we even need these? And who are these people to be making these on our behalf? 
Well, sometimes, you know, was, we've never really touched on the Delphi technique meetings, but, you know, these Delphi tech meetings that, that are held by both councils and NGOs. Um, one I went to with a group of, or a large group of people ended up being there, but there were originally, when we got there, there were six people that were in the audience, but they were all on exactly the same page as the people running the meeting. And therein lies the problem, is that not enough people actually get to these meetings to start asking the hard questions. So they were all talking in their own echo chamber and they all agreed to it, and that was the outcome of the meeting. And so these plans go forward. And it's not until people actually start getting really, really active in their community and going to these meetings and holding a few feet to the fire, basically to ask some hard questions, and 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 they get panicked quite quite quickly when when things suddenly go away from the script. So it's up to us to get involved. Yep, completely. Now, in any case, let me go to the targets that the Aotearoa People's Report, which you can yeah. find on sdg.org.nz. We New Zealand have a Sustainable Development Goals website, sdd.org.nz. The first target, they say, is adequate, safe, and affordable housing, basic services, and upgrade slums, right? They say that, and I'm quoting this paper, it says the one-time Kiwi hopes of possessing their own quarter-acre Pavlova paradise has become an elusive dream. This SDG is one of the most important to New Zealand at this time. And please keep in mind that this report was written in 2019. So they quote here, in the first three months of 2019, emergency housing grants totaling 23 million were made to meet the needs of double declines from 2018. By March 2019, more than 11,000 people were on a waiting list for public housing. Right? So yeah. we're talking about 2019. And we're talking about 23 million people, uh, 23 million dollars in emergency social housing grants. So five years later, let's do a stock take here. I looked at the Ministry of Social Development, msd.govt.nz, and I am looking at their quarter-ended September statistics for hardship assistance allowances. This says that there were 20, nearly 26,000 emergency housing grants during the September 2023 quarter. The value of these grants was $88.2 million. So I just mentioned we had in 2019, $23 million in emergency housing in three months. And now for the quarter just gone, we have $88 million. That is three and a half times nearly. We've gone up 350% in emergency housing grants. So how well have we actually progressed in terms of uh, inclusive and sustainable and affordable housing? Poppycock, I'd say. Well, there's that. And, you know, when, when do people who, who need emergency housing and, and, you know, there's definitely a need for it, but when do they become clients? You know, and, and, and where does the money, where does this money go? And and has the cost climbed so much because, um because we've got we've had councils that land bank, especially Auckland was was bad at land banking, and we've got a lot of absentee landlords, so and and empty houses. So is the price pushed up because land is harder to get? 
<clears throat> or more expensive, you know, where does that money disappear to? I know. Where where does it disappear to? They keep saying stop the sprawl, but I'd say stop making housing deliberately unaffordable. The Outyear uh, People's Report, SDG 11, also makes a mention here, especially of uh, one particular council, which is Rotorua. It says in its target 11.3 that the Rotorua Lakes District Council signed up to the United Nations Global Compact Cities Program and its 10 principles in 2015 as a part of its Rotorua 2030 vision and since then has responded to young people's call to address climate change, consulted with the indigenous population, so on and so forth. It says Rotorua's goals are lofty, including a resilient community, homes, outstanding places to play, a vibrant city, so on and so forth. So 2015, when this was signed, the United Nations Global Compact, you know, that conspiracy theory that I now see in black and white in official New Zealand government documents, Steve Chadwick was the mayor of uh, Rotorua at that point. And... I'm going to see if I can play a short clip of Steve Chadwick at that time speaking at the Global Compact Cities program. Here goes. I, we have begun the journey of being New Zealand's first sustainable city in the Global Cities Compact. And so it's a learning for us about what is the future and how do we bring a community with us. Uh, but it's great to be part of a wider group of connected people that are going to help us on that journey and link us in with research and other exemplars of what are happening around other sustainable cities. So huge help for us. Well definitely the d development of the model of partnership with our indigenous people that gifted the city. Uh, the land that the, our town is built on was gifted by the tribe and so we've now developed a formal partnership model with them. Uh, that was hugely controversial but we've got there and uh, the sky hasn't fallen in and in fact uh, we'll be sitting around the council table on a much more inclusive platform now. We've also got 14 lakes that are very vulnerable ecosystem. Oh. That was the Rotorua mayor in 2015 speaking at the United Nations Global Compact Conference, talking about how well Rotorua is going to be doing. And has anyone uh, noticed that Rotorua is, seems to be in the news right now, Jill, for all the wrong reasons? Yes, it does. And it's interesting, Jasper, you know, when you listen to these people, they, the language, you can always tell them by the language. <clears throat> you know, it's it's the same thing over and over. But, yeah. Yeah. About <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we know that, that this has been happening. We know that the crime statistics, at least when finally the police reluctantly released the data 18 months after staff requested it. Oh, shows a listen. huge increase in call outs to five emergency housing motels in Rotorua. The figures are jaw dropping. In 2016, there were 46 call outs by police. In 2021, that number grew to 259. The following year, 2021, 491 call outs just to these five emergency housing motels. That's a 967% increase from 20. Isn't that amazing? And we call that progress. 
Well, they call it progress. But, you know, you've got to wonder where it all happens from. And, and if you go back to the um, to the people's report, um, yeah. so in the 1960s when families had begun to migrate in significant numbers, the government had to, co had to come to recognise that the economic future of most Māori lay in the larger towns and cities. After the Hun report of 1961, which recommended social reforms for Māori, the relocation of Māori became official policy. The word relocation is in inverted commas, okay? Rural Māori families were encouraged to move to the cities with the provision of accommodation, employment and general assistance in adjusting to a new life. And I, I wonder if, because I was around, I was living in the Bay of Plenty when, when Māori started to urbanise and I had a much older sister who... Um, who had moved to the city as well, and we actually saw this happening: these, these small rural towns emptying out. All the all the men went to the cities. The young boys went to the cities, and there was almost nothing there for them. They suddenly lost their their feet and their place. And I wonder if this moving Maori out of the rural areas and into the cities was actually the start of a bit of a urban experiment. And it's been a disaster. If I am a New Zealander, but if I was being exposed to, regardless of my ethnicity, to that level of crime, you know, from 2016 to 2023, and nearly, what did they say, 967, nearly a 1,000% increase in crime, a 350% increase in the value of the dollars doled out for emergency social housing, I'd be aghast. We are being taken backwards very deliberately, and yet the People's Report says some of the aspects of decolonization are beginning to take place. For example, Wellington's Tina Kori Hill has been renamed to its original Ti Ahu Mai Rangi, but there's still a lot of work to be done to better represent Maori values in urban design. I'd say the average New Zealander, Maori or not, would just value lesser crime, cheaper housing, and less government tinkering in their lives and let private businesses, let the people go on with it. Stop making more clients for MST who then get literally stuck there in no man's land with nowhere else to go for the rest of their lives. Let them live a life of dignity on their own. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? When you, you know, when we've got so many people in a country that is so wealthy, that are living in, in motels, they're living in cars, living in garages and, and, while all the fancy words come out, nothing very little um, is being done from this from the, both the UN and central government. Now, there's a lot of places out there that are helping build houses. A lot of people putting in really, really good work in the community, and it, we've got to make sure that they these people don't get lumped in and slammed with with the ones that are actually at fault for bringing about the situation. You know, because most people I firmly believe are good people. Yeah, um, so so do I. And, but, you know, we could, Jill and I, we could have easily taken this talk today on this SDG 11 to smart cities. But Don Nicholson and I, we have spoken to Julianne Romanello from the US and a couple of other overseas speakers on the smart cities. I have myself gone into detail on how you can look up the smart city Australia New Zealand code. You can see that the organization called ALGEM, Association of Local Government Information Managers, has become uh the the empowering you know the sort of enabler to turn to get every single new zealand council signed up to the smart city uh, forum so 
we are, we are not going to go there. I'm just going to be looking today at how we are deliberately destroying our country from the thanks to the dictates of the UN. And but there's one thing, Jill, that you mentioned: the UN Habitat Strategy. Now, the United Nations Strategy of Sustainable Neighborhood Planning. It's got five principles. You can just look up UN Habitat Sustainable Neighborhoods, and you'll get those five. The first is efficient street network and adequate spaces for streets. The second principle is at least 15,000 people per square kilometer high density. The third is mixed land use. The fourth is social mix. And the fifth is limited land use specialization. We see town after town, city after city, Kianga Aura now putting social housing where people would not have uh, you know, thought of that happening. We are seeing people complaining about having to live right next door to suddenly a high rise, which doesn't even need any consent or you know even any consultation with the neighbors this has all happened thanks to this i would also at this point i think trolling through some council documents uh from christchurch because we have so many of these un compacts on we spoke about steve chadwick and rotrua having signed up to the un uh, compact cities compact there's another one called the United Nations Covenant of Mayors for Climate and Energy. And uh, I believe it was the Christchurch City Council that signed up to it. Was it 2017 and so on? And now you have Auckland. Christchurch. Auckland signed up to the C40 cities, Jill. There's so many tentacles here. But let's <sighs> listen to this council clip from 2017 of Mayor Leanne Denzel talking about signing up to Bloomberg's covenant here. I'm joining a very powerful network. Um, covenants. <laughs> my, my invitation to join came from Michael Bloomberg. A little bit long ago, um, but <laughs> Three I, did, years. I did say, no, only two and a half, um, I did say at the time that I didn't really want to sign up to uh, a, um, a compact or a, or a um, uh, covenant unless we were... <laughs> Unless it was actually going to be done, you know, like I, it, there's no point just saying you're going to do something. There's no point signing something and having a big signing ceremony, you know, we do that all the time in other portfolios. Um, and But I really wanted us to sign up to this because we we meant it and we were going to measure it and we were going to do it. Yep. So, um, so, and you guys have worked so hard on this and I'm sorry for being flippant about the time, but... Um, you know, I'd much rather that the effort went into establishing all of that baseline work and then the basically the tools for how we um, then deliver. You must be very proud of what you've done. So I'm certainly going to take great pleasure in signing up. So, um, so Yanni moved it, seconded by Dion. And there it is. There was a lot of laughter in that council chamber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was, and I'm, I'm not quite sure what was funny. No, and yet we have people who absolutely deny the impact of uh, United Nations compacts in, you know, in our government, be it central or local. I, I don't understand what is there that you can't find out. It is so 
uh, easily available there. I think it's only the staff reporters that don't really know what's going on. <laughs> that also seems to be our uh, MPs, you know, that uh, don't seem to think. We have ones like David Seymour and others who seem I, to think I, that uh, there is nothing to see here. I was being a little bit flippant about it, but, you know, <laughs> um, that woman, did she She noticed, She mentioned the guy Blue, Bloomberg and... You know, nobody in New Zealand votes for, for Michael Bloomberg and when they own a, a big media empire. So when the Oxford 15-minute city started, you know, that started coming out, the first thing they did was just punch back to say it was conspiracy theory. Yeah. But I know you're not going to go into I'm just going to touch on something with 15-minute cities. 15-minute cities, in my mind, is, is like a human feedlot. Everything you need will be bought in. And everything, all your waste will be taken out, and you are, you're no longer free to roam. And that's why it starts with the housing and supplying housing. And, and of course, once the housing is supplied, then the cameras come in for people's safety because a, a crime has been allowed to get out of control. So you'll have your facial scanners and your and your your number plate scanners, and then you will slowly. And it's not going to happen tomorrow by any means, but then you will slowly lose your freedom to be able to move, and to move out of your area, you will require a permit. You know what the Oxford. hell? Oxford. It's it's already happening in Oxford. There's a it's, certain number of times in a year that you can go from how they split it into four districts. Oxford in a, the in the UK. I'm talking about listeners. But yeah, this is this is happening across the country, and I, and I think at this point, because we've been talking about how this is impacting people. If you do a quick Google, and you look at just Google speed cameras, council crime, NZ, you will find simultaneously it's happening at so many councils. You look at speed limit reduction, which comes from the United Nations uh, goal to net zero uh, accidents, and how does that happen? It doesn't. It's human nature. You can't st- stop everyone from drinking and driving. You can't stop someone stomping out in the middle of, say, a big domestic, not seeing where they're going and crashing. You can't stop a kid that's high on a weekend. And this is going to happen. But well, some at the yeah. heart attack on the wheel, um, you, you know, I think you can't, you know, like you can't get to net zero rubbish, which is a joke. Um, yeah. Can't get to net zero road deaths unless you have no roads. <laughs> yeah, and and at this point, I I think we could Jill and I could go on and on, but I I think we will end the segment with the short clip again because this is what happens, and this is from Christchurch City Council again, where someone has gone in very angry about what sort of cycleways are being put in and where, and the lady doesn't mince her words. Have a listen. Too late to become ethical. Top Christchurch lawyer Storm McVeigh not holding back her contempt of Council's lack of consultation on the Park Terrace cycleway. In May, Council staff took out a vehicle lane and replaced it with the cycle lane as part of temporary traffic management. They also placed a bus stop on the lane. It is bad enough that Christchurch City Council staff think they can plough ahead and squander hard-earned rates on unnecessary and pointless traffic changes without any consultation whatsoever. As she continued to have a go at staff, Councillor Sarah Tibbleton raised a point of order, but it was inaudible the first time round. The next few times, it was clear Tibbleton was not happy. When they are finally forced to consult, they completely disregard the views of the majority. 
and manipulate and misrepresent the data to support Point their own position. Point of order. Yes, Councillor Templeton. Uh, the public forum person has uh, been disrespectful of staff by accusing them of manipulating the information. Um, staff didn't make a decision. They took it to the community board and made that decision. I have specific comments to connect to this okay, that are factual. To completely disregard the view of the majority and vilify those who stand up to Point be counted. Point of order. Well, I could go on and on, but you get the picture. So this was happened in Christchurch about two months ago. I think this is from the Christchurch reporter, Chris Lynch's Facebook page. And if you go there and look up, I think this is, yeah, this is a post from 2nd of August on Facebook. You can have a look. But um, I think Jill and I will have to wrap up this segment, but hopefully within the tripling of uh, emergency housing grants, the 10 times increase in crime, the mushrooming of cameras and cycle lanes and, uh, of course, changing names, changing names of certain streets and cities to mollify a certain very vocal segment while disregarding the rights of all New Zealanders. You get the picture here. The power lies in the NGOs. The power is lying. Where else, Jill? Your non-governmental organizations, your lobby groups, various activist groups, and, of course, children who councils have often used to declare climate emergencies. Yeah, children have been, your children are being um, so badly manipulated by this entire um, agenda. But, you know, on the subject of 15 minutes cities and, and what's happening and, and um, may I make a suggestion for your husband to, you know, or your partner or whoever to, um, you know, for a Christmas present and that's a cordless angle grinder. <laughs> and Dill is just joking just to be really really clear here this this lady I would uh, I am very surprised Jill I wonder what you were like in your youth that's not to say you're not youthful now but yeah you don't want to know <laughs> no I really don't but on that fabulous note which was not in a serious way. We'll call an end to the segment. Thank you so much for joining me, Dawn, our guests, including Jill, this morning on Greenwash. We'll see you again next week. Goodbye. Have a great day, Bye. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio.